Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So let us begin. So the final 20 of Solo A Star Wars Story kicks off with Han and Kira and Chewie bringing in the coaxium uh, aboard uh, Dryden Voss's yacht. Uh, immediately, Dryden asks what happens to Beckett, and they lie because Beckett has just abandoned them to go off to Tatooine. They say that Beckett died, and Dryden Voss uh, launches into this whole spiel about how the coaxium they brought can't possibly be uh, the real stuff because his informant tells him about their uh, imminent betrayal. Yes, so it's implied to the audience that it's Kira. However, we find out that Beckett has actually been feeding the information back to Dryden Voss. Uh, however, in through kind of through all this confusion, we realize that Han has in fact triple crossed all of them by actually bringing the coaxium, as opposed to having done what he had told Beckett by bringing fake coaxium because he believed Beckett would do this to him. And so ultimately, that leaves Dryden Voss's enforcers out with Enfys Nest's rebels, who have then been uh, hiding while the Natives of Savrine are disguised as them so that Enfys Nest crew can get the jump. Ultimately, Dryden Voss loses all of his crew on Savarine, and when Beckett realizes this, he kills Dryden Voss's two henchmen so that all of the odds are in his favor, and he gets to decide what happens next. So he kind of enlists Chewie to carry the... Uh the legitimate coaxium back to his ship so that he can make a breakaway. And once he does that, there's sort of a shootout between Dryden Voss and Han Solo as to who is going to uh, leave the room alive and go chase Beckett. Um, ultimately, um, it looks like Han is going to lose because Kira obviously can't be trusted. But then she double crosses. My God, there's a lot of double crossing. She double crosses mm. Dryden Voss. They disarm him and uh, she kills him, I guess, right? Yep, so she kills Dryden Voss, uh, to our surprise, but says, oh, well, we need some money because you're going to go return all the coaxium to Enfys Nest. So you go after Chewie and uh, get that from Beckett, and I'll rob Dryden Voss in the meantime. So Han goes to catch up with Chewie and Beckett. Uh, he does catch them uh, and ultimately shoots Beckett as soon as Beckett shows him even one little bit of lip. And while he shoots Beckett, he also notices off in the distance that Kira has decided to take Dryden's Voss's yacht and uh, sail away as opposed to uh, sticking around to spend life with him. And of course, the great twist there is that we're learning uh, Kira um, confers with Darth Maul and uh, he summons her to go uh, join him. And so that's where she's headed off to. And this kind of leaves uh, Han and Chewie. Alone once again, um, they part ways with Infus Nest. They have kind words, but they go off on their own uh, adventure. Yes, so they go off. Uh, they find Lando. Uh, Han kind of approaches him with a ton of anger uh, because Lando abandoned them, but realizes he has a better idea, decides to play him for the Falcon uh, using the small bit of coaxium that Enfys lent them as kind of a reward. And ultimately, by hugging Lando, he steals that green Psylocke back, not allowing Lando to cheat this time, ultimately winning the Falcon, and him and Chewie kind of fly off into the sunset. <laughs> right, exactly. So we've done a lot of complaining about this movie in recent weeks, and I think it's all justified and we've backed it up. But interestingly, 
for every criticism we've had of the way they develop the plot of this story, we've often said, but the script is really well written or like the yep. plot is really poorly developed, but the dialogue is really snippy and at least that's enjoyable. And I actually found this 20 to be really good in terms of plot development, but I found the dialogue to be really cringy over and over again. I thought the dialogue was really phoned in. And the note that I made was that there are just far too many David Caruso lines in this 20. Do you know what I mean? Yep, I absolutely know what you mean, where you pull down the sunglasses because it's just too convenient to say that. Like almost every character has one of these moments where they're like, you, you underestimated me, kid. And then there's some like vague callback to some previous dialogue in the movie. And I just found it to be a little bit too much. Oh, absolutely. For me, the biggest take back in this episode is the fact that every twist is as obvious as you could possibly imagine and it's like they're trying to fool us. I mean, yes, they really, there's not really a character that they introduced uh, that we, I don't think there's a single new character in this movie uh, other than L3, who ultimately isn't a piece of shit in the end. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. So, I, I, I still oh, don't think Han Solo is a piece of shit. Well, no, but what I mean is we knew Han Solo, we knew Lando, we knew uh, Chewbacca, uh, but like all these new characters introduced to Han's life. I mean, I guess maybe that's the point that some of the good ones die and the the good ones he decides he's not going to spend his time with. But uh, yeah, no, I I guess. I guess it depends on how you... It's definitely one of the take backs. It depends on how you define what a piece of shit is, because you could definitely make the argument that that Beckett is no more uh, a bad person than Han Solo is in episode four. And for all this talk about how we're trying to do, see how this character works towards being kind of an outlaw and a, well, just a self-servant, um, mm. Beckett is that. And I guess, I guess that's something they did pretty well with this script is they created a guy who could be a good uh, uh, prototype for what Han Solo is to become. We just never get to see Han Solo become that. Yeah, he's he's the cautionary tale for sure, and it shows that Han Solo is following in his footsteps. But we do realize that in the New Hope, he isn't going to do what Beckett does in the end. So um, when he has the option to either kind of go with the money or go with the crowd, uh, Han does choose in the end to go with the crowd. Let's consider these potential sequels that we're never going to get the. The initial conceit, although I don't know if this was ever confirmed, it seems pretty logical that they were hoping to do a trilogy of solo movies. The movie cost I think it may have been mentioned. Yeah, the 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 movie cost at least two hundred and seventy five million dollars to make. It's one of the most expensive. I think it's the seventh most expensive movie ever made in the history of Hollywood, and it it made three hundred and ninety three. So it 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 barely broke even in the end. So it's of course the greatest commercial flop in Star Wars history. Had it been more successful commercially, and they'd gone on to make another solo movie or a couple more solo movies. A, do we think ultimately Han kills Kira and that's what makes him a cynical son of a bitch? That's a really interesting point, that he has to kill her maybe. Yeah, I actually, I kind of I kind of would like that. That would make some sense certainly as to um, adding some seriously pessimistic views to this guy's life. But I, I you can't bank on this movie working so well that you're going to get a trilogy out of it. It's just, they were built to be standalones yep. and then they kind of got cocky about it. Don't get what, cocky kid. Come on. 
what happens with Kira when she goes off to meet with Darth Maul? He says we're going to be uh, working much closely, much more closely together. Obviously, she goes off to do his bidding. So what does their relationship ultimately become? <laughs> Bring the ship and come to me on Dathomir. And you and I will then decide what to do about the traitor Beckett and his accomplices. I'm on my way. Kira, you and I will be working much more closely from now on. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of theories obviously out there about that. Uh, Darth Maul, we don't know what happened. There was kind of two different points where we didn't realize what happened to Darth Maul. Uh, because we knew that he loses uh, the kind of the, the siege of Mandalore, and he's banished by Palpatine because um, he escapes kind of his, I guess, captivity of sorts. And beyond that point, we then later meet up with him on um, Morband, Corband, Morband, I think is the new name for it, which is the uh, which is essentially the the home of the Sith, the the Sith temple planet the octu equivalent of the dark side right um and so specifically we have no idea how he got trapped on moraband and so there a lot of people have theorized potentially kira overthrows him to take over crimson dawn uh traps him uh by playing off of his obsessions with kind of you know the jedi way ultimately allowing there to not be that crossover point where han sees too much of the force okay because that's one thing. You can't have Han, you can't have Darth Maul become Han's enemy because Han nope. doesn't believe in the Force. That's right. So that's a good point. You need to be able to have some way to steer it off. And actually, one really cool theory that I saw on Reddit that I just, I don't know how anyone didn't fucking clue into prior to this. And that was kind of the comments everyone said right after was, we can tie up all of this shit with the Cassian plot now. The Cassian yeah. show. It just makes sense. It's oh, sure. our rebel... It's rebels, it's scummy people, it's the dark parts of the galaxy, it's a spy show. Uh, you can totally make Kira the main villain of a season. Okay, but do you think they're going to bring back Amelia Clark and Alden Ehrenreich to be in the Cassian show? Uh, I don't think at this point Alden Ehrenreich by any means, no. However, if you think about trying to keep a lot of those same actors in the family, Amelia Clark, I thought she did... The more I watch Solo, the more I like Kira and dislike pretty much everything else but i think that character could certainly work and i think people want to know about darth maul now i think they exposed they brought him uh, to light to too many people to just now not kind of flesh that out a little bit more in my opinion yeah i remember uh, leaving that movie and thinking uh no matter how you felt about her her the way the movie was made or her as an actor i remember thinking i have the most questions about what becomes of kira and it's, yeah. impor it's important to me that we have some of those questions answered. Now, on a surface level, the Darth Maul reveal in this movie might be the most uh, initially exciting and compelling reveal because it's fan service. Uh, I know there was a little bit of controversy over just the aesthetic of Darth Maul, and you had a lot of opinions about that. I think you've changed a little bit. Uh, completely changed my opinions, and apparently it was something that was 
uh, an issue based on the screenings that you were at. Uh, so there was also issues with this movie as well when it comes to darkness. So certain time, certain uh, theaters that showed this movie, you could almost see nothing on Mimban. Everything was insanely dark. And I don't know oh. quite why the reason was for that, but that was an issue. And so there was also an issue where Darth Maul looks really fat. He looks really beefy. <laughs> and I, th- I, I don't know whether it was 3D or... Or what the fuck the case? I I don't know what it was, but it's it it's like he was stretched out a little bit, and I remember thinking he looked just terrible uh, in the movie theater. However, after after going back and seeing it a second time, totally disagreeing with my initial thought on it. So uh, I absolutely think it's beautiful. I think it's the best mall there is because it's the cross between Ray Park and Sam Witwer, the two best aspects of mall, uh, and you get the mechanical legs. Uh, oh. And he's in his kind of like insanity point. I really, I really like that element. Uh, I guess I don't I, like how unfleshed out it is, though. I don't know if I can, I can endorse this theory that he's the best mall there ever is. I think, I think that's that's quite. I think that both other malls are better than this little blip in the radar that is mall. Now, I didn't ever, no, ever no, necessarily. No, you see what I mean is that it's the best amalgamation. Ray Park was. Like, I know he's the physical interpretation of it. I understand, but it, it was just such a quick little thing. And I also, I'm not that satisfied by it. Like, I think his voice sounds cool, and I like that we get to see his mechanical legs because that explains some stuff that people who aren't aware of the animated series at all would definitely be be held back by. I'd ever found him fat-looking. I find him more jacked-looking than I would choose for him to be and much older in the face than I would for, choose for him to be. His eyes are really, really sunken. He almost looks like a, like a zombie or something. And my other... Big frustration with with the Darth Maul sequence in this movie is him turning on his lightsaber at all. That's just a yes. weird. It's a weird flex, bro. It's like he just uses the the force to bring over his lightsaber, even though he's alone in his office talking on the phone, and he ignites yeah, it. Yeah, it's weird. Just to clear it up for anyone who's not convinced it's Darth Maul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely have that as a take back. Like I have one of the best moments is Darth Maul, but the take back is. Just kind of certain elements of the execution with Otadote, the weird pull the lightsaber towards him is really dumb. Uh, but actually, this is another cool thing. And uh, I, I do like the sunken in eyes. I think that's in a, kind of an, a, a nice throw to the way the character is developed through the Clone Wars. Yeah. Uh, you show the, the pure level of insanity he's gone through uh, and really kind of just, he he's essentially reborn. He kind of is a little bit of a, of a kind of a, a dark magic zombie to a degree. Yeah, that's uh, true. He's not. He, he doesn't really necessarily die, but he's regained his, uh, I guess, strength and prior form through dark magic and such. And so, it, I, th- I think it does kind of work that way to show that he's he's been through a fuck ton. And this in Sith, you're supposed to be aged a lot. It's supposed to just wither away and destroy you, the dark side. And so, I think that does fit pretty well. Uh, but one thing I was going to also lead off of uh, is that this perfect blend of Maul, we do get to see more of in Clone Wars coming up because not only does Sam Witwer do the voice for that as well, um, but for the first time, Ray Park is going to do mocap for the character of Maul for the Clone Wars so that it really, really looks and feels like him. Wow, that's really exciting. That's really cool. That's very, very cool. Okay, now I want to shift gears and talk about Infus Nest. Uh, There's kind of a, a, it's actually a sweet moment of dialogue where she's parting with Han. Do you know what that really is? Yeah, about 60 million credits worth of refined coaxium. No, it's the blood that brings life to something new. Yeah, what? A rebellion. It's a lame line. 
Well, here's my thing. I don't find it corny if you could easily make the argument that Infus Nest is the first rebel. Is she? No. no. Then no. Then you're that's, right. It's bad. That's the problem because she isn't the first rebel at all. The first rebel, uh, that's the, the, the best part about it is the first rebel is Padme. Yes. Oh, she's yeah. the very, very. She is the very first rebel, uh, and it's like the entire rebellion is built from, kind of like from Bail Organa and Mon Mothma, and it's out of kind of Padme's image. Uh, she was the main target of so many friggin' political assassination attempts, and the Chancellor, who becomes the Emperor, was so closely like aligned with her and paid so much close attention for so long that I mean. You can absolutely make the argument that Padme's the first rebel, but the only other two people that you can say would be Mon Mothma or Bail Organa. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great point. Do you want to talk about some quotes? Yes, uh, I really have very few because, like you mentioned, the dialogue is shit in this episode. Um, I have I really love the exchange between Kira and Han. Is uh, it's not that kind of game, Han. The object isn't to win; it's just to stay in it as long as you can. You yeah, don't know everything. Good. No, you just, I know, I just know more than you. Right. I, I like it a lot. What is she referring to? Working for Dryden or just being a person in the galaxy in general? Being a crook, being in the underworld, basically saying it will catch up with you. And it's, 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 it's a little bit of foreshadowing. You could almost say to like the carbonite moment where like at the end you will, you'll lose Han. Yeah. There, there is no winning in this industry. The, the winning is getting out, and I just tried to prevent you from getting in, and you're in now. So, right, it, it, it's kind of one of those like I'm going to do everything I can. Even her leaving at that point is still trying to kind of get him out of it, um, because I kind of think that's all it is. It's just her trying to to allow him to save some innocence throughout the the movie. Yeah, you could make the case that she abandoning him isn't just self-service it could also be uh not letting him get roped into all this like just oh i don't think it is self-service no you think she's cutting him some slack she's kind of like letting him go yes oh absolutely yeah Uh, i i I think it i think it hurts her to do it i think um when she mentions the the smile part to han smile That's the word. Whenever I imagined myself off with you on some adventure, always makes me smile. I just think it, it shows that she has always viewed it as a fantasy that wouldn't happen. Uh, she smiles about it, but it's like, yeah, I, I would always think about it, Han. So it doesn't make a difference that you're back because that's not, it's like that is a pipe dream for me. There is no option. I am... I am the number. I was the number three to Darth Maul, and now I am his number two. Uh, right. I can't get away from that shit. <laughs> right, right. Uh, they're in the office, and and Dryden asks Han to bring him over a canister of of coaxium. He says, "I don't think that's a good idea, Dryden. This stuff is highly explosive." And Dryden says, "I never ask for anything twice, Han. I think that's okay." Yeah, that's a good one. I have a couple ones. Other one here, a Han and a Beckett. Um, Han says, uh, Beckett said he heard about this very big gangster putting together a job, which I think is a really funny line because the line was it's a big shot gangster, but he calls him a very big gangster, and Jabba the Hutt is a very big gangster. So yeah. I wonder if they <laughs> thought, thought of that. that. Was, that's yeah. what I think. That's I, I think 
plays in line with what you said before about how there are some there's some really smart dialogue and writing in this movie and right. to be honest i think it's jonathan kasdan and I, I i i'm not sure but i think he might be working uh in some association with uh with the Cassian show, I'm not 100% sure why I'm thinking that. Or I know he's still with, or no, maybe he was working on um, Jedi Fallen Order. I know he's still within the Lucasfilm community contributing to Star Wars. And I know a lot of people didn't like him because he was very kind of boisterous in interviews. But I actually, I think a lot of these wonderful little nuggets are directly from him. And I love that because I think that needs to be in more movies. Right. Uh, because these were consistent nuggets with the galaxy far, far away that... I felt had, uh, I, I don't know whether it's like a Jonathan Kasdan was the one to bring up the dice or whether that was Lawrence Kasdan or Ryan Johnson or whoever, like, but I would be surprised if Jonathan Kasdan was the one who thought the dice was the the right little uh, talisman to bring back and add some meaning to it because he seems to be pretty good at knowing what uh, what's a good fan callback. It's a pretty standard, pretty classic uh, Star Wars-y type of quip. Beckett, what are you doing? I'm thinking, and I prefer to be the only one holding a blaster while doing it. Yeah, that's the other line I had, and that's really all I have. Oh, there's a good Lando line towards the end. You really, really have, have it bad, bad for the Falcon, don't you? It's mutual, trust me. She belongs with me. <laughs> that's a good exchange. Y- yes, that is. That is true, and that's a... I actually love that final scene between the two of them. I think it's very fitting. Um, I, j- I like that... I, I've said this before, but I like that Lando's a cheat, so I think it's good. I like that, and obviously it's it's very gratifying when he he kind of barges in really pissed off at Lando, and then he has an idea, and so he turns it into laughter and gives him a hug. I mean, that's a familiar interaction between these two. And you're alive. Yeah, no thanks to you. I should have Chewie ripped your arms off. In fact, Chewie did. Hey, we are friends. You know that. We're friends, right? We're not going to... <laughs> uh, oh, look at you. Thought he was going to rip your arms off. Uh, I knew you were kidding. No, you didn't. That's a great point. I actually didn't even notice that. Oh, I didn't oh. even think about that. And that's like the first time we meet Lando before. Oh, I didn't even clue into that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I mean, very much like. That's an obvious uh, callback. I don't know how I missed that. Very much like I hate you, I know. It's, it's one of those gratifying. Yes. It's really how fan service should be dealt with. It shouldn't be so obvious. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. It's it, it sh- there should be enough little things like that where you don't always make make the notice right away, but it can be a, a fun little realization on the later views. Do you uh, uh, want to go to trivia? Yeah, I was ready to say that. What do you have for your Padawan question? Uh, you got this one, no problem. Where is Darth Maul when he confers with Kira? He is on Dathomir. Da- uh, what is that a planet? Is that his office? Yes. Uh, no, so Dathomir is where he's from. Uh, that okay. would be his planet. Uh, it's uh, essentially he's a he's a Dathomirian, which is a type of Zabrak, uh, and he in particular. So for, on Dathomir, there are the Night Sisters, which are a type of kind of dark magic force users, and they're the ones who kind of bring him back to his full strength. And then there's the Dathomirian Zabraks, which are the tattooed looking ones, uh, as opposed to um, like Ethkoth, for example. So we can confirm that his facial markings are a cultural, like, tattoo thing. It's not just how he looks. Um, no, I have like, – that's one thing that I don't exactly know. I know that at at one point it was supposed to be tattoos, but I'm not 100% sure anymore because on Dathomir, in, the, in Clone Wars at least, when they're going to 
kind of find a new apprentice for him and they go and they like kind of seeking out his brother uh you notice that everyone in the community is tattooed the exact same way or they look the exact same way so i'm not sure if it's a tattoo that's just everyone in their tribe does it or it's something that is the way that their skin is because they're a certain type of zabrak so i'm not 100 percent sure to be honest on that one um but i know that it's because he is a certain type of zabrak from dathmir all right give me a padawan question uh, well, that was mine, and so I will go with uh, I'll go with one of my night ones. I, I only had two night ones, a master and a padawan, so this is gonna be a little bit tough for a padawan. But uh, what does Dryden offer the crew to eat when they arrive in his office? That's my night question. It's a colo clawfish. Yes. Do you know what that is? They're from Naboo, right? They're in episode one. Yes, that's right. It is the fish that uh, I think it's the smallest, bigger fish. That's uh, and they're just like oysters, basically. It's some form of, yeah, like raw fish delicacy of sorts. I'll give you my master question. In the novelization of this film, who do the Cloud Riders pass the coaxium onto? Ooh, that's a really good one. I didn't, I have not read the novelization of this. Um, let me think on who could make sense. Uh, is it somebody we know of from the rebellion? Yes. But I, I really, that's, I, I have the answer written down here, and I'm very curious to know how this, how the logistics of this would work. Okay, so let me think. We're midway through. Um, I'm doubting it's going to be somebody like Bail Organa or Mon Mothma. It's not like Admiral Akbar, probably. Are they from the original trilogy? No. No, okay. Is it, uh, is it one of Padme's handmaids? No, it's Saw Gerrera. Oh, really? Which is uh, I weird. Guess it makes sense for the use case. I guess it does. but And also, we don't really know how long they hold on to that coaxium. Maybe they keep it for a long time. Uh, well, no, that's interesting because it wouldn't surprise me if... Uh, well, that's that kind of sheds light as to how they were going to go with on this as a trilogy. And that's interesting because Sagarera is a crazy person. He, he is... Um, he's a political like, zealot. He, he's an extremist. He's... A, yeah, he's an extremist. He's a rebel, but in the worst possible way. Yeah. Uh, it's He kind of leads his own faction uh, similar to the way Mon Mothma and Bail Organa have theirs. So that leads me to believe that Enfys Nest could actually end up being um, the reluctant villain of Han's. Um, so in theory, Han could be against the rebel. That could have been something they were going for, was the rebels could have been an enemy of Han in this, but it was just a different faction of the rebels because, I mean, if things go crazy, if you're run by a guy like Saw Gerrera, I don't know if Enfys Nest is going to fall in line or if she's going to um, revolt. Right, and by the time uh, A New Hope rolls around, he is neither aligned with nor against the rebellion. Like, he kind of wants no part of that. Yeah, exactly. And so it leads us to believe that at least he knows a good bit to stay out of it. Do you know the other actor who was considered to play Tobias Beckett in this movie? No, I don't. Who? They, got it, they got it down to two guys, and the other one was Christian Bale. Oh, well, Christian Bale would have been excellent, of course. I mean, I, I would love to see Christian Bale in a Star Wars movie, and, and honestly, I'd like to ha him to have a better part than that. Yeah, that's a really good point, to be honest. Uh, Christian Bale is insanely good. Some people have wanted him for Thrawn, uh, which I am 100% against anyone being Thrawn, except for Lars Mikkelsen at this point. Yeah. But uh, I think 100% he, had, he could be so good in a Star Wars movie, 
and when we're opening up the that other part of the galaxy now hopefully thousands of years ago it just there's so many different opportunities as to who he could be well, and not that it's a better part, but just because he plays such a good villain, Tr- Christian Bale would have made a really good uh, Dryden Voss as well. And that's nothing against Paul Bettany, but he would have. Yeah, and Michael K. Williams was initially that role, and I would have actually—I think he's such a great Star Wars fit. I think the face just belongs in Star Wars, which is funny because I don't even know if he was going to have his real face. I think he may have had uh, an alien face. So yeah, I'm and we were sure on that. But we were talking about the species of Dryden Voss last week, and so I did a little bit of research into that. And you're right; when it was Michael K. Williams' character, it was going to be another alien altogether. And Dryden Voss, yeah, heart uh, lion style. Yeah, according to to Wikipedia, he is a near human. So it's not enough to say that he's just humanoid, where he like walks on two feet and has ten fingers, like say a Twi'lek might. He is basically a human, uh, right down like to uh, his his organic makeup but his dna is a little bit more complicated than that and so um i don't know if he was born necessarily with the scars but it's he's it's basically to say he's a human is correct and to say he's not a human is also correct okay so potentially snoke would probably fall in this category as well i didn't i didn't read anything about that i don't know if we know enough about snoke uh to say but especially since we don't know what snoke looked like when he was like 17 years old right we don't know if that's what his real head looks like or if he had a had a explosion at the lab or something i'm just trying to picture like young snoke just graduating high school (laughs) all gangly and hadn't really filled out to form yet right like like in uh like in gold member when they flash back and and dr evil looks the same but he's in high school (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah uh what is the jungle planet that the final scene takes place on I don't know. I have some thoughts about about this, but a- answer your question first. Uh, it's Numidian Prime. Oh, okay. I think I, I recognize that name, actually. Uh, when we cut to that sequence, I like the scene a lot, too, but when we cut to that sequence, there's this weird music. Very few people have actually seen the Starcave Nebula. It's breathtaking. None like your eyes. How much do you know about intertwined celestial bodies? Because I happen to be something of an authority. By the way... Uh, this like percussive end of a Disney movie uh, Moana yes. Save the Day style music that really doesn't feel like Star Wars to me. Yeah, absolutely. I can. It, you're absolutely right. It's like it's amping up to uh, the song that is going to be the Billboard Hot 100 song that plays at the credits at the end of the movie. Yeah, and it just like it, it's very brief, so it's forgivable, but it it feels distinctly a Star Wars. Yeah, no, it it also it feels distinctly Disney too. Yes. Oh, but like I said, like it sounds like Moana saved the day. Yeah, no, that's an absolutely great comparison. Right. Okay, um, you got one more for me, question. Right? Yeah, uh what's the name of Dryden Voss's doorman? Eamon? Uh no. That's a good one though. No, Eamon would be his head of security. Uh his doorman was in was Tot. Oh, okay. All right. I know I tried to remember Eamon because I thought you might bring that one up. Yeah, that would have uh, been a good one to do. Is this the first time in a Star Wars movie we see an actual sword that's not a blade of energy but a blade of steel? Uh, probably not. I would be shocked if there was not if there were not swords as decoration in the prequels somewhere. Right. I think used though for sure. This is the first ever Star Wars movie to never mention the Jedi. Yeah, that's 
been interesting. It's, it it it, it kind of shows the importance of why the the force is necessary a little bit for me. Um, yeah, I I know that some people not so much, and some people think that you can go the full range, but. I don't know. The force is what makes Star Wars so special, and so it's nice if there is some element, whether you whether the characters even know it or not. But the audience, it would be nice to know if the audience was a little bit of aware of the force in everything. That's all I have for this for this uh, entire movie. In fact, I have no other observations, no other ways to to uh, scrutinize this film. Yeah, the only thing I have left to say would be that I like that Han shot first. I hope you're still paying attention because now I'm going to tell you the most important. I have a smart move, kid. For once, I would have killed you. Yeah, I thought that was a, a solid ending point. I don't know how the fuck he got ahead of Beckett and Chewie. That makes zero sense. <laughs> right. Uh, seeing as he stuck around for a good bit after. And I also don't quite know why him and Dryden Foss decided to fight. Uh, Dryden's suggestion of them teaming up, which was a fake suggestion was good and made sense. There was no reason for them to hate each other, seeing as Han only had said that under the notion that, you know, I Beckett think maybe him, so. I think maybe they had just screwed with each other's brains and trusts far too many times yeah. at this point. They like they clearly couldn't fair. couldn't trust each other. Yeah, that's fair. Although I did like the line this is an an excellent time to reevaluate our relationship. I mean, honestly, Paul Bettany, it's kind of a shame we're never going to see him again in Star Wars because he is so good in this movie. He's a sure. great actor. He's like, he just has this kind of stiff, sophisticated, lurid scariness that I, I think it goes a little bit wasted in this film. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that at all. And uh, it would be nice to see him maybe come back in some way, shape or form. But I'm I'm very excited for the galaxy to open up in terms of thousands of other years to play with as opposed to 20-year periods. So uh, I'm also well, okay to never see him again. That's a good place to transition into the news. It is, definitely. Uh, so yeah, in kind of general canon, uh, we know that Benioff and Weiss are officially the directors of the next, or sorry, not the directors, but the creative directors behind the next trilogy of Star Wars movies that will be coming out in 2022, 2024, and 2026. It was a very, so, very stupid week for them to announce this. It was a really, yeah. because there's never, ever been more, uh, more toxic negativity around these two people in their entire careers, and they're like, well, let's also announce that they're going to be in charge of Star Wars. Yeah, no, I mean, everybody knew it in, like, specifically, and so announcing it wasn't much of a, of a surprise, but it was definitely not a well-timed instance because Game of Thrones has had a disastrous final season, whatever your opinion of it is, from a business perspective, uh, this makes no sense for Bob Iger to have done, but Bob Iger doesn't really pay attention to that sort of stuff when it comes to aligning business with Lucasfilm. And sometimes he just says whatever the fuck he wants and doesn't I don't realize know. the I, impact I, that may have. I disagree with a couple of things you said. I don't think this has been a disastrous season for Game of Thrones. I think this has been a disastrous couple of weeks for what it means to be a fan of something. I think that like people have the entitlement of fans... Uh, specifically of Game of Thrones, but also of Star Wars, clearly, and of Batman, for that matter, 
yep. is is ruining is ruining your ability to enjoy things, and I think it's not fair. I also don't think everybody knew that Benny Hoff and Weiss were working on Star Wars. I think I think it's easy to forget that we're really in this, yeah. and that the layman is not up on all the little news and the rumors and and the what we're expecting. So that when they announce Benny Hoff and Weiss are going to be working on Star Wars, there's a lot of people who are hearing that for the first time, and their initial reaction is to go, "What the fuck?" So they can ruin that too and that just adds yeah. to the adds to the negativity for the record i haven't seen the finale yet because we taped this a couple of days before it's coming out but i thought game of thrones had a great final season yeah i mean and that's the thing it's, it's not your opinion of game of thrones however the majority of critics and pundits uh, can probably collectively stand together that there have been errors made i mean there's reason as to why and without a doubt uh, the the element of uh, fan entitlement is the major issue, but there is something that w has been missing in this final season for certain fans, whether it being it was rushed, it shouldn't have been uh, broken apart in this way, there should have been different length episodes, there should have been more episodes, and so, like, it doesn't matter, but specifically because there is, I guess, so much you could talk about very specifically as to whether it's right or wrong and the, like the media is focused on the negative right now i guess that's what i'm trying to say so whether or not it's entitlement from the fans the media is focused on the negative right. of this particular season and as opposed to the last jedi it will not make the financial reward from this season that the last jedi was still able to do despite the incredible fan backlash so that's where i really see it is because it's going to leave such a negative taste in everyone's mouth that this is a huge failure for hbo from a business perspective for how this will fizzle out and potentially tarnish the long-term ability to sell uh, game of thrones and so I just I just mean it from that perspective. It's got I I, I don't have any less faith in Benioff and Weiss for Star Wars either, for that matter. Uh, it's just it's like you said, it's so weird that they chose to announce it now. Well, no, what this does, and I talk about this on this podcast a lot about how uh, a moment can be defined by the way the loudest people are discussing it now. So like. Everybody has mm. just decided that the series finale of Lost was a huge disaster because a bunch of really loud people didn't like it. And now a lot of other people agree that it's bad because they heard other people saying it's bad. Most people yep. are not critical viewers. Most people who watch entertainment, especially Game of Thrones and Star Wars, are not looking for Tennessee Williams-level drama. They're looking to be excited. But when they hear from other people that something is shit, they go, yeah, it was shit. You know what I mean? And so, like, yep. there's there are lots of people who, if, if, if the general consensus was that this final season of Game of Thrones was really good, the other people would not be saying otherwise. So it's just general oh, consensus absolutely. feeds into the greater narrative of something. And then you just decide in hindsight that something was bad. And the, maybe the best ever pop cultural example of that is the prequel trilogy of Star Wars, which were yep. riddled with flaws. But there was also lots of great and significant moments for a Star Wars fan. But everybody's just decided to write them off. Oh, not my president. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it falls without a doubt in that kind of category where people 
um, they're choosing ignorance because they think they have the ability to choose said ignorance when it's not their decision to be ignorant about it if they want to be involved with it. That's my I point mean, is that it's not up to you. You can have your yeah. opinions and you can you can break something down and you can try and explain to me why there's a problem with this, but you don't get to demand competent writers. First of all, exactly. you don't know you don't know what that means when you're asking for it. And this is like it, it's it, it TV and, and, and movies are not fan service. It's it's a product that was created by an artist. You could take it or leave it. It is cheaper not to go to the movies. Yep. And I mean, that is absolutely a way of looking at it. And then you can always go on the other angle of uh, it is a business. And so to a degree, fan service is what all of it is because the fans are the customers. And so you just have to look at fan services, whether that's going to be a, a dirty word or or a good thing. And so you have an overall story and that's that's a product that's being delivered you're not changing that fan service in my view is our like call outs and homages and uh, but to be honest like like you said i mean having having a a problem with the product you're allowed to but it's not like you can be frustrated you can't buy a toaster and be really mad it doesn't keep things cold right Exactly. Or, or like a better example, like if I, if I wish they made Pepsi lime and Pepsi refuses to make it, I cannot buy Pepsi anymore if I want, but I don't get to demand that Pepsi makes Pepsi lime. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, or when a company were to cancel a product line for certain things like that. And so there are so many things where people feel ownership over creative commodity as that's entertainment as opposed to because I guess they feel like they're voting with their dollars and buying with their dollars, but at the same time, I don't know that that constant communication with social media sometimes uh, lends way too loud of a voice to some really stupid ideas. Take it or leave it. Yeah, exactly. All right. What else? Uh, on a more positive news, uh, within that same kind of note, there was also announced that there was another TV show going to be coming out prior to that point, another live action TV show coming out prior to that trilogy. Uh, in addition to Mandalorian and Cassian. So there's been speculation over what that could be with some pretty solid likelihood being that it could be the Obi-Wan TV show that right. was at one point a movie script and one point changed over. And so like, there's been a lot of smoke in that area. So where there's smoke, there's fire, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it is because uh, there was also a rumored um, gangster style underworld movie. And then a while back there was... The Boba Fett movie, which I think eventually morphed into The Mandalorian in the sense of satisfying that part of fandom. And so right. it'll be interesting to see as to what this is. But this is kind of but has the potential to be a final nail in the coffin of an era. It's going to be the last piece of content that is starting prior to this new trilogy, which we all assume is going to take place thousands of years prior. So I think it would be nice if they didn't make this like a transition piece, if they made this a uh, show that was about one final thing that we know and love, uh, and then you make the transition after that, and then you, we don't get a single piece of uh, new content from a live action perspective beyond Cassian. Uh, that TV show and The Mandalorian that come from the period between The Phantom Menace and uh, The Rise of Skywalker. You make a I don't good want point, to though. See anything else? You make a good point, though, because there's so much talk about The Rise of Skywalker being the final Skywalker story, and to then yeah. make the the much 
demanded and much wished for uh, Obi-Wan TV series or movie is kind of playing with those terms a little bit because Obi-Wan probably has his own story to tell, but it's still indelibly connected to Skywalker. Yep. I mean, you could definitely say that. However, there was also a lot of belief that that was the reason why the Obi-Wan movie was delayed. Uh, There was a direct quote from somebody, I forget who it was, um, somebody within Lucasfilm, that his the story wasn't over and right. so i don't remember whether that was prior to the story of rebels uh, the kind of that final bit with maul i don't remember but I, th- there's more there and so you, you do make a good point that if it has a large skywalker arc to that uh which i would really fucking hope it would i hope it's not just obi-wan like fighting off sand people right but uh, yeah, you would assume it would have to have some pretty strong linkages to Vader. However, that could also provide additional context that we wouldn't be able to get in The Rise of Skywalker uh, to just kind of fill out that history a little bit more, but in a way that uh, is just more enriching for the hardcore fans. Bingo. Uh, George Lucas's birthday, 75 years old this past week. I know we do the birthdays a little bit after, but that was an important one, so I had it written down because I normally don't have the birthdays written down. <laughs> That's okay. That's good. Happy birthday, George. Yep. Uh, not a whole lot and other uh, kind of updated news. There have been some, for making Star Wars, they have kind of a cartoon update of what the Knights of Ren look like, and apparently it's a, an accurate depiction of them and so that's kind of interesting because the one who in early sketches the knight of ren who had a lightsaber visible um the the lightsaber also looking extremely like vader's lightsaber right uh, that individual knight of ren is the one i've always kind of expected was matt smith and is the one who is front and center in this picture and is clearly the leader of these knights of ren so that lends further credit to that theory in my head okay uh, he's the one that kind of looks like uh, his face was chopped up with a uh, boiled egg cutter where it's got the lines <laughs> crossed from both directions. I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I do have to say, though, if this is an accurate depiction of what they're going to look like, they're a scary-looking bunch and definitely uh, uh, definitely are going to be a cool addition. I hope they are. I uh, think that we've teased them enough for a couple of movies now where I really want them to be more exciting than uh, uh, Phasma or... Praetorian Guards even, which were awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, and I think, and we've talked about it before, I really do think that Matt Smith is going to be in this movie. I'm, I'm convinced there's too much there's too much smoke there. He's going to be in it. I think so. Um, John Williams has done 25 minutes of scoring for The Rise of Skywalker, and he's right. going to sink his teeth in more next month. Very good. Uh, and one final thing, uh, last little bit, a uh, rumor that has some smoke behind it from making star wars uh and that one would be that billy lord is going to be filling in for one flashback scene uh as princess leia uh to be kind of redubbed in a similar way they did with rogue one but as opposed to using a different actress directly having carrie fisher's daughter which is wonderful uh and that would be a scene rumored to be explaining a little bit more context as to why leia uh, did not explore the force where Kylo's darkness comes from uh, and it would be kind of a focus between the two of them discussing the prophecies surrounding their own existence that's very cool but I mean Billy Lord already plays a character in Star Wars yeah she plays conics but that would be this instance where it, all they were doing is the like 
de-aging, de- whatever they use for Tarkin and Leia in Rogue One, where yeah. they're putting somebody else's kind of deep faked face over top of it. Um, but doing that just with Billy Lord as the person behind it, because that's the most respectful and, and wonderful way to do it. I don't want to complain about when they put uh, Carrie Fisher and Peter Cushing's faces on those other actors for Rogue One because technology is amazing and it's just a silly thing to complain about in a Star Wars movie. But I will oh, yeah. say, having seen the stills a couple of weeks ago from from Rogue One, I haven't watched that movie in a while, but uh, the Princess Leia, Leia one in particular is not aging very well. It, it re- really doesn't look great. No, the uh, the Leia one was always one that I wasn't a huge fan of, and I was glad that they just had like the singular line because it doesn't look the best. However, the best part about that is it's technology, and so when they re-release these all in 4K, in do it again. A couple years in a nine-episode box set, uh, or better yet, like a 12-episode box set, including Rogue One and all those things, they can redo yeah. it. You're so right. You can just update it. And uh, are like, we are are we doing Rogue One next? Is next season going to be a Rogue One breakdown? Yeah, next is going to be Rogue One. Okay, that's awesome. Um, and just kind of while we're on that same notion, because we're finishing up Solo here, um, and I, I'm sure we've chatted about this before, but I just watched it again today. It was when they uh, do that technology where they put Harrison Ford's face on Alden at certain scenes in this movie. Yeah, and Re- it, really it, subtly. It, yeah, it's subtle, but it's it's really so cool because it just makes it seem so much more like Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, it sells it for sure. Yeah, and it's a shame because it's like a massive insult and it, to the actor, and then it also reduces the likelihood that actors would take certain roles like that. But at the same time, it's so exciting as to what they could do with that. So, I know. Do you think that Sebastian Stan would be open to something like that if he had the opportunity to play a young Luke? Not that I think that's ever actually going to happen, but do you think that he'd be willing to have his face digitally altered oh. now that he too is a movie star? I think he would be okay with that for that circumstance. I think Luke Skywalker is one of those very, very few ones where you could pull that off. Uh, I don't think there's a fat chance in hell that'll happen. No. Uh, they're, they'll get somebody younger than Sebastian Stan. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I, I think maybe they will, but they had somebody else who was going to be a stand-in in The Force Awakens for one scene, and, and they were younger than Sebastian Stan. And if you're going to get somebody to stand in like that, um, unless you're having them be a main character, you don't need them to be an amazing actor either. And so I own, I think the best likelihood that we ever see Luke Skywalker again uh, would be in Mark Hamill's most famous medium, animation. And that would be the one that makes the most sense. So you have the ability to manipulate time and characters and not have the same constraints of aging and live action. And also the ability to still have Adam Driver involved because there's no way in fucking hell he's going to do anything beyond this movie. <laughs> I don't know about that. Money talks, man. Money does talk, but he is an artist through and through, and he does not want to be tied down to Star Wars for much longer. You can just tell. And that's not like an insult. You can just tell it's not uh, something that he dislikes by any means, but he's he's clearly based on his... He doesn't show up to everything. It's not like he's bleeding Star Wars. I I understand what you mean. Do you have any more news? Uh, No, that was uh, literally everything. It's just a couple more birthdays. Uh, this coming Saturday, the 25th, a happy birthday to Frank Oz. Yeah. Then the very next day, Sunday, the 26th, happy birthday, the late Peter Cushing. Ah, yes. Another homage uh, there. Uh, the next day, yet again, Monday, the 27th, happy birthday to both Christopher Lee, uh, the late great, and Paul Bettany, who we talked about. Nice. Uh, next Wednesday, uh, the 29th, a happy birthday to Sebastian Shaw, who played Anakin Skywalker in Return of the Jedi. 
Yes, for a few minutes. And uh, do we mention Peter uh, Mayhew's birthday last time? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just that was the other day. Just the other day. So uh, that draws to a close another season of Recorder 66. If you have any thoughts you want to pass along uh, about about this season, about this movie, if anything we've said uh, rubs you the wrong way or you have anything you want to add, you can email us anytime, recorder66podcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at Recorder 66. We're uh, on iTunes and all the other podcast forums. Uh, if you could rate and review positively on there so that we uh, – can be found by more Star Wars fans. That would be greatly appreciated. And until we uh, join each other for the first 20 of Rogue One, a Star Wars story, may the Force be with you. Yeah.